Amen. And please take a seat and please take a Bible. There are some church Bibles available at the back shelf. And on Sunday mornings, we're working our way through the first letter, Peter's first letter. And we've come today to the last paragraph of the first chapter. But let's pray together before we read God's Word. Oh Lord God, we have your Word open before us. I pray that you'd open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your Word, to your truth. pray that you'd give it illumination by your Holy Spirit. He, he inspired these words to show us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. So 1 Peter 1, that's the first chapter, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of glass, grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Thank the Lord that he's spoken to us in the reading of his word. So we saw in verses 3 to 12, if you remember that's one sentence in the original, that Peter began by recounting our privileges, our privileges, the blessings that are ours as Christians. And then in verse 13, Peter wanted to show us the therefore, the implications, the so what of those great privileges and how does that affect the way we live our lives. And Peter continues to do that in verses 22 to 25. And Peter's, Peter's consistent pattern, as we will see as we go through the whole of the letter together, is to exhort us to Christian duty very clearly. And then very clearly in the context of that exhortation to obedience, to keep reminding us of the gift of grace. So it's an exhortation to Christian duty and obedience with a reminder of God's grace. The imperatives, which are the commands, always rest on the indicatives, indicatives which is the promise and the gift of grace. In order that we don't become too big for our boots and that we never think that we're able to obey in our own strength. But even our obedience is equipped by the grace of God in the gospel. Augustine fam famously prayed, My hope is only in your exceeding great mercy. Lord, give what you command. Command what you will. And that is what Peter is saying to us over and over again. The heart and dynamic of living the Christian life. Lord, supply me the grace that I may be obedient to your call. And in verse 22, we see the main ethical target at which Peter is taking aim in our lives. That's what he wants from us in verse 22. Peter wants a sincere brotherly love. He wants us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
And we're going to take our time this morning to explore the indicatives of grace that stand behind that imperative, which is the command to one love one another. And we're going to look at the way that God blesses us by his rich mercy and his wonderful grace so that we can love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This past week, um, two weeks ago actually, I was reading um, about one of the most famous expeditions of the 19th century, right into the heart of Africa in search for the source of the Nile, the great Nile River. And there were two men. There was John Hannin Speak and Captain Richard Burton. Um, not Elizabeth Taylor's husband. No, no, it's long, longer ago than that. They, they trekked inland. And they trekked westward from Zanzibar and they reached Lake Tanganyika. And there Captain Burton was ill and he wasn't able to continue in the expedition. So John Hannin Speak went on ahead. He went alone and he found what he named uh, Lake Victoria. You know, after Queen Victoria, he named Lake Victoria. And John Hannin Speak declared at that point in the first of his two expeditions, that Lake Victoria was the source of the Nile. And then Captain Burton was sick. Uh, he, he had to stay in recuperate there in Africa. John, uh, John Hannin Speak went to London and proclaimed, I guess with all the societies, whatever, that he had found the source of the Nile and it was Lake Victoria. And when Captain Burton came home, he didn't agree with him. He, he, di he disagreed with him they never reconciled and the dispute went on for some years. But now, I mean largely, I, I tried to find out exactly, but largely Hanin Spake's expeditions have been accepted. And that even though they find these other you know, you know, rivers, tributaries that feed Victoria, Victoria is largely acknowledged to be the source of the Nile. What's all that got to do with 1 Peter? Well, it's a good, 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 a good question. I like stories anyway. But... Um, well, what I was thinking about was, as I was reading 1 Peter, these verses, I was thinking about that story. I was just reading it completely unconnected. Because in some ways, what we need to do, and here's, this, is, this is where I'm doing my jiggery-pokery to try and make it fit, is to follow the, the, the thinking of Peter's, to follow the, the trail of Peter's thinking back to the source. So he begins with brotherly love. That's in verse 22. That is what he wants. So how do we get there? How, how, how can brotherly love like that be produced in our lives? We need to do this trailing back to the source. So it does fit in quite nicely after all. But So if you try and follow Peter's logic with me and see the train of his thinking. So brotherly love is, is denial. Okay, it's, okay it's what is required of us, probably better to say, to try and fit the... It's brotherly love earnestly from a pure heart is what is required. And if you take one step back, it is rooted in being purified. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So at the back of brotherly love, there needs to be purification that takes place. And then the next trail... Peter says that purification takes place by your obedience to the truth. 
We're on thir stage three now. Stage one is brotherly love. The, what's immediately behind that is purification. What is behind that is obedience to the truth. And that is Peter's language for being converted when they responded in faith and repentance to the gospel message. And Peter says behind all of that is the new birth. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So you see the ch chain of Peter's thinking. Brotherly love needs to flourish in our hearts. Where does that come from? It's the consequence of a purified soul, which comes in the wake of Christian conversion, which is your response to the truth, which comes from God through the, through the new birth, and God uses the means of the ministry of the Word. So there's five stages, if you're, trailing, if, if, if you're doing what Hanin Spake did, from the Nile to the Victoria, which is brotherly love, purification, conversion, new birth, and the ministry of God's Word. So that, that, that's the kind of trail I want us just to go through this morning. Peter starts with the objective, sincere brotherly love. That is what Peter says is the fruit of purification that came when we obeyed the truth, sincere brotherly love. We should love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The language Peter uses is helpful. The sincere brotherly love, the Greek word is anu... I tried it at home, I'm not going to be able to say it now. Anu pokritos. Okay. It, you, I, I can show it to you and you can go and type it in like I did to, to Google and then hit the little play button. But... It basically means unhypocritical. That is the Greek word for unhypocritical. And the background of that work came from the context of a Greek play where, where the actors would wear a mask as they adopted the persona they were playing. Apparently, you know, the Greek plays, you had a number of, number of parts that were played by the same people and they just put on a different mask as they played that person. And what Peter is basically saying is unhypocritical. He said, love amongst Christians does not wear a mask. Sincere brotherly love is love that doesn't wear a mask. No pretense, straightforward, real deal love. Now, love like that is uncomfortable. It is risky because we all wear masks for a reason. Sometimes we are ashamed we're ashamed, and we don't want people to know who we really are, so we wear a mask. We build a wall. We hide. We keep people at arm's length. Or I would say the second main reason why we wear masks is that we're afraid of getting hurt. We may have been hurt a lot, so we're afraid of getting close in case we get hurt. So it's not easy to love the way that the Bible calls us to love. It feels risky. It's, we feel vulnerable to love like that, that doesn't wear masks. But what Peter is saying is that when you become a Christian, everything changes. Because you can take the mask off. You can take the mask off. 
You can come out from behind your wall. You can risk loving one another really, truly, deeply. Is, it, is that the name of a film or something? Or a song? Anyway, it's, 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 but you can take the risk of loving one another to be known and to know somebody else. So that's, that's the first thing he says about the love, that it's unhypocritical. It's taking that mask off. Secondly, it's earnest. You see that the word in the second half of verse 22. Love one another earnestly. So sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. The English Standard Version, which is our church Bible, translates the word there as earnest. And the word I can, you can, can be... Um, can either refer to intensity or duration. So Peter could mean one of two things. He, he could have meant, I want you to love passionately, you know, fervently. Or he might mean, love you unrelent, you know, sort of unrelentingly, un, unremittently, perseveringly, you know, long-suffering. But either way, the point is the same. It's if you take it, this together. Love that Christians are to show one another is heartfelt, number one, passion, and lasting, long-lasting, not superficial, not a flash in the pan, not on again, off again, stable and strong, not blowing hot and cold. Now, given how hard love like that can be for us, how prone we are to wear a mask, where do you get love like this? How can you and I begin to one love one another like this? We're commanded to love like this. How do we obey this command? We are ashamed. We don't want anyone to see. We're afraid of getting hurt. We do not want anybody close. How are you going to love like this, given that reality? So step one, love one another. Step two, Peter says, such a love comes having purified yourselves. You've purified yourselves for or unto sincere brotherly love. Probably the only thing I want to mention before we move on to three is the past tense is important. Peter is not now commanding you to be or become pure. This is a declaration that his first readers have become pure at some point in the past. When did it take place? We'll move on to step three because it's all linked in this chain by obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves when, how, by your obedience to the truth. So this moment of inner purification took place when they obeyed the truth and that the summons to believe the gospel, to repent of sin, to trust in Christ. Peter is talking about their conversion. And Peter is saying that when a person is converted, there are many things going on. Peter mentions two in particular. Number one, conversion brings cleansing. Peter is saying when you obeyed the truth and you came to Christ, you didn't stay dirty. You didn't stay dirty, you became clean. You, pur you purified yourself, not by anything you did, but by trusting in Jesus whose blood can make the foulest clean. Before the judgment seat of God, your guilty stains are washed away. In the theater of your own heart, the polluting power of sin was broken. And that's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now see, that's what, that's what happens when you become a Christian. You are washed, sanctified, and justified. Or in Peter's words, you purify yourself by obedience to the truth. And when you are converted, you get clean. So you see that, how that helps with this task of taking the mask off, learning to love one another sincerely from a pure heart. Peter is saying you do not need to be ashamed anymore because you're clean. You can take the mask off because of the Christian gospel. You are clean. You can let people see you. Because if we truly grasp this, it's, it's life-transforming. Because in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Your brothers and sisters are sinners whose sins have been forgiven. You, you've purified yourself. You're clean now. You do not need to be afraid anymore because, like I said at the beginning of the service to the young people, you're secure in Jesus Christ. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven accepted before God, renewed by his grace, never to be lost, nothing to snatch you from his hand. Friends, we can take that mask off. You're secure in Christ. Come out from behind the wall and take a risk and love somebody and don't be afraid to be loved. You can enjoy connection, community. That's what Peter's calling us to. But you only get it when grace erupts in your hearts and makes you clean. And you only do that when you obey the truth. That's the first thing Peter says. Conversion brings cleansing. Secondly, conversion is obedience. He says it. You obeyed the truth. The invitation of the gospel is not a negotiation. Is <coughs> one of the most new languages of the current world we live in is life is a conversation. This is not a conversation. This has been obedient to a command of the king. It's not just an offer of a wonderful possibility to take or leave. It's a summons by God the king. God commands all people everywhere to repent. It's not nice to have. It is a command to repent and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now we should have a very high doctrine of the sovereignty of God and God is the one who saves sinners. I believe that. And I believe that, and some, but sometimes I believe Christians misstate that because they're afraid of being thought different, as if to suggest we have no part at all to play in our conversion. But Peter is saying repentance and faith is something you must do. God will not do it for you. It is your will that responds to the offer of the gospel. It is your obligation to answer when Jesus calls. You must do it. You must obey today without delay. And every, every now and again, 
I, I run into people who say to me, Pastor, I want to be a Christian, but I'm waiting for God to zap me first. And I know somebody who took months off work to go to some place and kept to try and find that God would zap him. And I think Peter would say, dear friend, if you're waiting for God to zap you before you answer his call, you will never come at all. You'll never settle the great question of your response to the good news. I got out my um, Brethren hymn book yesterday when I was writing this. There's a wonderful verse there. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners, Jesus came to call. Which is the point, you must obey the truth without delay. You should not look to or appeal to any other consideration. Jesus commands you to come. Come! Come without delay. Repent of your sin. Turn from life your own way. Bend the knee to King Jesus and do it without hesitation, without this excuse. Just let the masks fall away. Obey the truth. Love without a mask. Risky, honest, vulnerable love. And as we make our journey back to the source of the river, you remember my imperfect illustration, the second stage of that journey, you purified your souls. Love without a mask. Purified your souls, you got clean. Step three, you heard the gospel, you said it's me, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty in God's sight. I need mercy, Jesus save me, deliver me, rescue me. I have no other hope but you. And he did. And all of that, step four, brotherly love, a purified heart, you obeyed the truth, happens because you were born again. Not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Back of conversion is the work of God the Holy Spirit in the human heart. Paul said in Ephesians 2, you are dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been faithed, saved and raised up with us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Conversion is our obedience to the truth. We repent and we believe, but the new birth is nothing, it's nothing we do. We are powerless. You didn't do a lot when you were born physically. And the same is true of the new birth. We are dead, Ephesians says. We are lifeless. But as Peter says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our verse this morning, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again, to live in hope. It's the sovereign work of grace that brings the dead to life. Well, that raises some important questions. The sovereignty of God, his initiative. We're passive, unable to alter our dead condition. Does that fact render the other things that Peter is saying to us in his letter, like give a reason to everyone that asks for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Peter is saying, I want you to be on mission together. 
That is Peter's agenda. So does the sovereignty of God in salvation render mission pointless? And the answer is no. Does it render evangelism useless? Is there nothing one human being can do in the life of another by means of which they may pass from death to life? It's a good question. And number five, by the means God uses to effect the new birth. The last stage, Lake Victoria. We've arrived at Lake Victoria. The last stage of the journey back to the source. One of the most extraordinary, thrilling features of God's way of working is that God uses means. God uses means. God tells us what means, Peter tells us what means God uses to effect the new birth in dead sinners. Look at the text. What does it say? How does God get it done? He says we've been born again. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of gra- gra- grass, not glass, grass, the grass withers. I should really become Cumbrian and say grass, shouldn't I? Or, but I can't help it, I just say grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is a bombshell passage. It provides all the wind a preacher needs in his sails to get into a pulpit with confidence. You see what it says? It's electric, really. It says, when you open the Bible, and it doesn't only apply to preaching, but when you open the Bible and you proclaim to somebody who Jesus is and why he came and what it means to follow him, when you say what this book says, even though you and me are nothing more than grassy flesh, which is what Peter says we are. Peter is quoting Isaiah 40. Peter is basically saying that you are just a great big clod of grass. You're a lump of grass speaking to another lump of grass. I, don't, I really don't want to insult anybody. Please don't be offended. But you're basically a lump of grass speaking to another lump of grass. That's you and me. The epitome of powerlessness, of temporary life. The flowers of the grass, they fall and wither. How can it be that one lump of grass talking to another lump of grass is the word of God that brings her out all this change? But that's what Peter says happens. It's absolutely thrilling that God works by his word to bring new life to the spiritually dead by one lump of grass speaking to another. Peter is saying that whenever you proclaim the living and abiding word of God, there is a possibility every time you do it in weakness, in stammering, and maybe incoherently every time you tell somebody about the message of this book, you could have a Lazarus moment. You could have a Lazarus moment right there before you. And, you if, and, and if you remember the story of Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead for how long? Three days? He was stinking. He was so dead that Jesus said, roll the stone away. They were worried about the smell. He was as dead as dead could be. 
And Jesus is going to ra raise Lazarus from the dead. And how does he do it? Did he rant and rave? Did he have hysterics? Did he have a strange ritual? Did he have a secret defibrillator up his sleeve? No, what, what he does is he speaks. Lazarus come forth. Now he's the son of God and if he hadn't said Lazarus, he'd have emptied the, the graveyard. But death comes to heal at its master's voice like an obedient puppy and Lazarus walks again alive from the tomb. And Peter is saying, that is what happened to you when you became a Christian. And that is what can happen today. You see, that, that, that is how a Christian is saved. That, that's how a Christian comes to life. You may have heard the gospel one million times. Or maybe that's an exaggeration. How many times you've heard it? And, but one day, one day, that same gospel that you've heard over and over again and is so utterly boring to you became life from the dead. Because you heard the voice of Jesus in that same words saying, come forth. In the middle of those words you'd heard before, you heard the voice of the Son of God saying, your name, come forth. And you came forth alive. And that caused the new birth, mysteriously by the power of the Spirit. And that's what he said happened to his first readers. And that's what has happened to us. If you're a believer today, that's what happened to you. He is saying, that's what happened if you will take the risk, my friend, and open your mouth and speak for Jesus. You don't have to do it up here. You can just do it over coffee with a colleague. And you could have a Lazarus moment right in front of you where the dead hear the voice of the Son of God and live. What does the hymn writer say? He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive, the mournful, broken Hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold your Saviour come and leap, ye lame, for joy. Who would not spend their days engaged with that? What a thrill. What a thrill. The possibility that just once a lifetime of proclaiming Jesus, a dead sinner might come to life is so, so worth it. What a thrill. What a thrill to be the instruments in the hands of God in raising the dead. Well, if you look today, preaching today faces sharp competition. We carry around in our pockets, and I'm the world's worst offender, a screen, which pumps entertainment and information, more information than we'll ever need, and it schools us to be consumers of bright, shiny data at a rapid pace, 24-7. It's amazing the technology we have, the access we have to information, how things have, you know. And then you come to church on a Sunday morning, and there's some guy who, according to Peter, is just a lump of grass. There's a sod of earth standing up here. And what's he doing? He's talking about an ancient book for 30 minutes. How can it compete? How can it compete with the razzmatazz? Preaching has one thing going for it. Because when the living and abiding word of God is preached, dead sinners come to life. Lisping, stammering, tongues. The dead are raised at the voice of Jesus speaking in the scriptures. I wondered, what did you come to church expecting would happen? 
I, I, I'm challenged by this. What do you come to church expecting to happen? Peter said you should come expecting resurrection. You should come expecting a resurrection. Because as the word of God is proclaimed, it's not about the speaker, it's about the word of God. And when the word of God is proclaimed, dead people live. And that's what we should be praying for, longing for, hoping for. Resurrection. We want miracles to happen through the preaching of God's word. And maybe you came and you don't know what you believe. Maybe you're not a believer. And you're here because that's what you do on Sundays. And maybe sometimes you know, we, you know, we take people along to church, don't we? Maybe sometimes that, that's who they are and I know people who, who, who have been, people have been on their case for weeks to go to church. They badger them to go to church. And they go to church simply to say, I went to church. But what's happening here is that the voice of the Son of God is calling. And we must render him obedience. And the Son of God is calling you to repentance, to turn from life your way, to bend your knee to him, accept life his way, so trust him. And when you do, you'll discover, as many of us have by grace, that the grace that enabled you to flee to him caused new birth in your heart, even in the midst of spiritual death. So do not wait for God to do something. God is calling you. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined, by the fall, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners, Jesus came to call. Let us pray. Lord God, we bow before you. We bow before you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we're here wearing a mask and we don't want to be heard again. Maybe we're wearing a mask because we're ashamed of our sin. Maybe we're wearing a mask just because we want to keep it at a distance. So by your word, would you work in our hearts and just remind us, teach us that as Christians we're clean and secure, we're safe. Help us to take the mask off. And for those, if there are any who are not believers, by the power of your Holy Spirit, awaken the dead, unstop deaf ears, and open blind eyes. I pray that everyone in this room would hear the voice of the Son of God and hear him calling. We need you, Jesus. Hear our cries. For his name's sake. Amen.